Good morning. I think maybe we are at a finally, as you caught me in the very beginning, at a stage where this might be working, <laughs> as we hope it should. A um, lot of trial and error for a bunch of novices in trying to get the um, live feed up. But thankfully, we, I think, got it set. So thank you all for being patient with us as we um, worked through all this. And sorry for all the stops and goes and, and everything in between. We're thankful that you are all here with us this morning through live stream. We're so grateful that you all will take the time to join with us as we try to worship through the hearing of God's Word and uh, the preaching of His Word and, and understanding that you know, we are joined by the Holy Spirit wherever we may be, which is actually gotten at in this text that we're going to read from today. As you know, we've been going through our Radical Grace series, and we've been focusing on the book of Galatians, and that's kind of where we've been getting our text from. And we've covered a couple of different topics as we've run through this. Um, last week, we kind of got down to verse 10 of chapter 3, um, of the book of Galatians, and so that's where we're going to kind of pick up uh, this morning. But if you will, join with me in prayer. Uh, that's the beautiful thing about this, that even though you're not here present with us to hear the Word, and even though you're not here present with us as we try to pray, you are still connected. We are still connected through the wonderful power of the Holy Spirit that can connect us across continents, around the globe, that as we all join together right now, our prayers are growing up before God. And so if you will bow with me, we'll open up with prayer. Father, we thank you for your wonderful blessings in our life, and we thank you that you have gathered us here together this morning at this time to glorify your name through the preaching of your word, through uh, the hearing of your word, to uh, read it, absorb it, take it in, enjoy it, rejoice in it, Father, of this wonderful gospel, this wonderful message that you've given us of your salvation, your deliverance, your peace and the joy that you have provided for us in it. We pray, God, that you would please be with us here this morning as we try to glorify you in, again, going back to your word, opening up the goodness of it, and sharing it amongst ourselves and with anyone who's listening. And also, God, for our own edification to encourage us, lift us up, and work in our hearts. So we pray for that work of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be with us here and everywhere we are together gathered this morning, and that through your wonderful, amazing, omnipresent power that you would join us all together before your throne to glorify your name in all that we do. So bless the reading of the word, bless the preaching of the word, and the hearing of the word, um, that it will be fruitful and that it will work in our lives. We pray that you would be with all those who have lost in recent days. We pray um, for those who are dealing with uh, illnesses and suffering um, and those who are depressed and scared in this current time. We pray for those who are working hard still and we pray for their protection and we pray, God, that you would just forgive us of our sins and we ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're going to open back up to Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read down to verse 10 just to kind of refresh us where we're at. And again, remember that the kind of main theme that Paul was getting at with this was you have been set free by Christ. What Christ did set us free from a lot of things. It saved us from hell. It saved us from death. It saved us from the enslaving power of sin. But also Paul really is getting at how it set us free from the trappings from the burden, from the slavery of, in the case of the Jews here, of their, their religious practices as a means to the end, or as the, as the means themselves, as the end game, as the ultimate source of justification and salvation. It showed the Jews that Christ was actually the fulfillment of all that. He encapsulated all that. He finished all that, and that now there's just Christ, and you don't have to worry about keeping the law, and you're not trying to get justified by the law. By the way, it didn't ever truly justify you anyway. And so he goes on and on and on about how this was the ultimate end game. Jesus Christ was the end game, um, and that you don't want to focus on the law as being the thing that accomplished this, because it never could accomplish that. It's always been about Christ. From before the world began, it's always been about Christ, and that's it. 
And so he kind of reiterates over and over again, it's just Christ. It's Christ all the time. It's Christ in everything. It's Christ no matter what. It's Christ and nothing else. So ultimately what he gets to in verse 1 of chapter 3 is he says, look, you foolish Galatians or you're, you Galatians, you Gentiles in particular, who's, who's confused you by this? Who has wrapped you back up into the law? You, you didn't even start with the law. You were Gentiles. You were free from the law. You started free. Now you're trying to get back under bondage. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? So here we read from chapter 3, verse 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has, who has confused you? Who has made you feel something, think something that you weren't already thinking? That you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only what I learned of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? See, he still had hope for them. He didn't think it was vain yet. And he also points out the fact that they had already been suffering, something he'll bring up later, for the cause of Christ and the cross. And that's really what these guys, these Judaizers from Jerusalem, this group of Pharisees were trying to get at. They were trying to get at the cross. They wanted it removed because they saw in the church the cross caused a lot of problems. Jesus caused a lot of problems. If we could just get the church to kind of ease back into a more Judaic form, well, then you'd have a little less issues. See how the cross becomes the central focus in this. So they wanted to remove the cross. And he's saying, have you suffered so many things for the cross in vain now as you're trying to kind of move it off to the side and go back to Jewish law in circumcision as your source of salvation. That, that seems a little contrary. Why would you give up the very thing you've suffered so much for? He says, He therefore that ministers to you the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And the answer is obviously it's by faith. It wasn't by the law. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So he goes back to making the point about Abraham. Abraham was declared righteous and just before any works of the law, to begin with, 430 years as he'll talk about. But also, even before the practice of circumcision, which was a man-God covenantal obedience relationship. Even before that. He said he still has when he had not done any works yet that he could look back on and say, okay, I'm justified because I circumcised myself. I'm justified because I did X, Y, Z. I'm justified because I kept the law. All of those things are off the table at this moment in Genesis 12 when God says, Abraham, I'm declaring you righteous because you believe through faith. And that's faith is something that he couldn't get out from circumcision, and he couldn't create from the law, and he couldn't make by all of his sacrifices. So he says, look at Abraham. Look how he was accounted righteous before the law, even before circumcision. Know, therefore, that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. That's the connection, and he's going to explore it a little bit more. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles through faith, preached before the gospel to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. This is kind of bringing everybody under the tent. For as many as are, and this is where we're going to pick up today, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the law, or in the book of the law, to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. This is something Paul has already made a point of way back in chapter 2. He said, We believed in Christ because we knew that you were not justified by the law. He says, That's why we believed in Christ. 
said, because we, me, Paul, being a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a keeper of the law my entire life, in fact, I kept it almost perfectly, even I knew that you could not be justified by the law. So what did I do? I believed in Christ, the only one who can justify. So he says there, it's evident the works of the law will not justify anyone in the sight of the God. In the sight of God. Why? For the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So that's where we kind of grab this chunk of text from 10 to 14 this morning, and this is what we're looking at. So the context is that, as we saw last week, following the law will not justify you. And by the law, you can put any kind of religious practice exercise or any kind of man-centric practice. You can put anything in there to substitute that. Those things will never justify you. If you And in the context of this and in the context of the law, if you don't keep the law while you're trying to live and be justified by the law, you are ultimately cursed by the law because everyone who broke the law, there was a curse placed on them. They were subject to the punishment that was found in breaking the law. So you had this problem that if you're going to put yourself under the law, then you're also going to put yourself under the potential cursing of the law. Well, that's not, I, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a good situation. And so the law is not of faith, as he said there, though you can, through faith, keep the law and its righteousness. I mean, Paul spoke of a righteousness that was pertaining to the law. And there were obviously those people like Moses and Aaron and others. There were faithful keepers of the law who were of the lineage of Abrahamic faith, Okay that followed with this lineage he's going to talk about. Not the natural lineage, but this faith lineage. This lineage of people who God had worked and changed and imbued with his faith that would live that out in the law and in other, in other exercises like Abraham did before the law was even in existence. So he says, though, that the law is not of faith, okay? Because it's not. It's a man-centric, religious, organized thing. Okay? It was given by God, so it is good. It is a good and right thing. There's nothing about the law. I mean, David would write psalms all the time about how the law was good, the law was honey, the law was perfect, the law was all these great and wonderful things. And we obviously understand that the law was good and right and holy. And it was a means by which man who had been formally separated and could not enter into the presence of God, it allowed them for the first time to be able to come into a tabernacle and be close face-to-face -face with him, to be in the same proximity. At least one guy, the high priest, could be right there at his doorstep. But everybody else was gathered around the tabernacle while this fire and pillar of smoke and everything was descending. I mean, God's physical presence was there amongst them again, something that hadn't really been in place since the garden. And how were they able to get so close to God? Well, the law was the thing that guided them to that. The law was the thing that said, if you wash, eat, pray, do these things just right, then you will be able to enter into my presence. But it was a means by which they could do that, but it still was centered around man's activities. And man could break it and man could keep it. But even when man kept it in perfection, it still did not change the legal problem that was in place between man and God. It still did not justify a man. It did not allow a man to walk up before God and say, I have full entry and relationship with you because of the works that I did in the law. It never satisfied that level of completion. And it never was intended to. It was always intended to be, if I can say it this way, a means to an end. 
as he will go through this and show you, was always a thing to keep in place, a placeholder, a guide, a steward, a schoolmaster, as he'll describe it, that always was there because of the transgressions from the garden that was there to keep us pointed towards the holiness of God and ultimately the one that Genesis 3 talks about, the seed of the woman who as Paul's going to describe here, is the seed of Abraham who is going to ultimately fulfill the law, the satisfaction of the judicial side of things to get us in right standing with God, to justify us. It was always pointing to Christ. And that's why Paul said that. He said, even we understand that the law was never the end in and of itself. It was always pointed to this one that would ultimately be the satisfier of these things. So in Christ Jesus, or Jesus fulfilled the curse of the law. So you have the law, which is a curse, which says that if you don't keep the law and you're trying to live by the law, you will be cursed by the law. There will be punishment by that. And Christ stepped up on the plate and said, amen. And guess what? I'm going to take that law and I'm going to keep it perfectly. And then I'm going to put it to rest to where the curse is no longer hanging over you. He took it on himself, and he became a curse in and of himself because, as he said, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Well, that's what Christ did. He took the road of crucifixion, hanging on the cross, a tree, taking the curse on himself to relieve the curse from us. And in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham came to the Gentiles. So it's insignificant that Christ is the mediator between the two parties here. There's two different parties that are in, in kind of context of this. The first in the kind of primary that we have is you have the Jews and the Gentiles, okay? And Paul is making the point, Jesus came as a mediator and a way between those two to break down that partition, to bring two into one so that all would fall under that blessing of Abraham, okay? The other is obviously the bigger one, which is the one that he talks about satisfying the curse of the law and fulfilling the law that God and man had a problem. Man messed things up in the garden. He broke the relationship. There was no way for him to get it back. And so Christ entered in on our behalf as a mediator to bridge the gap, to bring us back together, and to satisfy that, that end of it. So he was the mediator between these two parties, the Jews and the Gentiles and God and man. And Jesus took it all, the curse and the blessing, the curse of the law and the blessing of Abraham, and brought it all to all Jews and Gentiles. So when we start off, we look at faith versus law. The title, the subject that we're kind of listing for this sermon is The Law, Slaves, and Sons. So we start off looking at faith versus the law and curses versus blessings. So Paul here lays out the main point of the argument as he's kind of going through this. Remember, this is starting in chapter 1. It's going through his admonition of Peter. And as he's admonished Paul and he's, I mean, Peter and Paul is retelling that story to the Galatian church, he's now coming into, again, his kind of main points of the argument. And there were two here. The two options are either the law and live by it, or faith and live by it, but there's only the two, okay? And really under the law side of it, you can substitute kind of any kind of, I guess you could say, any kind of man-centric anything, really. Any kind of man-centric religious practice, any kind of, you know, whatever you want to substitute in there. You either have living by yourself, man-centric, focused on me, focused on my actions, my works. It's me that justifies me, and I'm justified in and of myself. Or there's Christ, and that's it. Just like he would say you can't serve God and money, you're going to choose one master over the other, he's always made a point you can't try and serve out yourself and think somehow you're serving Christ. You can't come over here and say, I justified myself by my works and what I'm doing and my religious practices make me who I am and satisfy the dead. Because if you do, as he said again earlier in chapter 2, then you're really taking the cross out of it. Why did Jesus need to die? 
Why did he need to come and give his life? If you could satisfy it by yourself through the law or through religious practices or whatever it may be, if you can solve it by yourself, then what was the point of Christ? So it's one or the other. It's either you're living it out by faith, and you can live religious practices out by faith. That's what we said with the law. There were faithful people who through faith faithfully lived out the law. But you're, you have to be pursuing it by faith. Because if you're just pursuing it by yourself, if you're pursuing it as the end game in and of itself, the law will never justify you. The religious practices, the works of the flesh, the man-centric religious organization, that's never going to satisfy it. It always has to be by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only one over here who has the power to satisfy so the two options are law and live by it or faith and live by it. The other, option, the other two options are either blessed or not. Blessed through Abraham by faith or not blessed through Abraham by works. And he lays that out a little bit more as he gets into this. There's the two kind of parallels that you'll have running there. The people who thought in the Jewish practice and the Jewish lineage, I am part of that blessing that was described in Genesis to Abraham because I'm naturally born as Abraham's seed. And what Paul is going to argue by what Christ did is that that's all well and good, and there is a natural blessing that God placed on Abraham's descendants. Even Ishmael was blessed in one way. He says, but that's not what we're talking about. He says, there is a spiritual lineage that follows through faith, that as faith was given to Abraham, faith was given to Moses, and faith has been given on down the line, faith is embodied in Jesus, and faith is given on to us. He says that's the lineage we're actually talking about here. That's how through faith Jesus provided the blessing to even us, to Jews and to Gentiles. So he kind of merges this into it's either through faith and you're blessed with faithful Abraham, or it's through your works and natural lineage, and there's no blessing. So it either has to be through faith, through Christ, through Him, and Him alone, because if you try to put man in that place, he'll never stand up. So he highlights a verse here that comes from Habakkuk chapter 2, says, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And Paul quoted this verse, which does come from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, and it's in both his Roman letter and his Hebrew letters. They emphasize the reality as expressed in Habakkuk that the just, those who are justified, those who are righteous, shall live by faith. Okay. Now, the justified will live by faith, which means they cannot be living by works. All right? That's what Paul is arguing here. What has been said before, as he's referencing Habakkuk, and what he references in Romans and what he references in Hebrews, is he's making the point, it's always been by faith. Abraham was by faith, not by works. Moses was by faith, not by works. On down the line, we're by faith, not by works. It's not by your actions. It's not by your religious practices. It is all still by faith in Jesus Christ. So the justified will live, shall live by faith, which is Paul's argument about Abraham. He was justified by faith before works came on the scene. Remember, that was before the circumcision. And there's kind of two ways that I always read this in my mind, okay? So the two ways that I read this verse, the just or the righteous shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, and the just shall live by faith. And the two ways that you can think of that is this, the just who have been born again, imbued with the Holy Spirit and filled with the fruit of the Spirit, which carries with it faith, and they are born again, filled with life and live by faith, as Paul said. So in... in Verse 13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the spirit of promise through faith. So how are we going to live? 
Where do we get our life from? Where do we get our new birth life from? Where do we get the life of a justified person from? Well, it comes from the borning again of Jesus Christ in us with faith. That's imbued with us. That's one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's given in our hearts. And again, he's going to talk about that a little bit more in depth in just a little bit. But that's where our life is actually tied with. It's tied with faith. Because that's what's given to us when we're actually given our new life. So how are we living? What is the thing that's keeping us alive? Well, it's the Holy Spirit faith action of Jesus Christ. It's who we are now. That's our, that's our life source. And the second way of looking at it is the just who have been justified, redeemed, saved, and delivered by Christ alone and not by any works of the law or the flesh shall only live by faith and faith alone and cannot truly live by any man-made religious practices. And what we mean by that is this. Now that you understand that your life is given to you through faith, Okay? and you live by this faith that is imbued within you, then when you're going out and actually living out this new creation life, well, what are you going to live it out by? Are you living it out by faithful, faith-imbued, in, faith-directed life in Jesus Christ, or are we living it out just in a bunch of religious practices? Say, oh, well, I go to church every Sunday or a live stream church every Sunday or I pray or I fast or I read my Bible, the right Bible, or I do whatever. However, whatever practice, is that really what you're looking at is the end game? Is it just the practices? We've said it a hundred times before. You were not saved to just warm a bench. You are not saved so that you can come in here and sit down on a bench and occupy space in the kingdom till you die or we get taken home. He didn't create us this way for that. He didn't born us again and go through all this trouble for just that. He says, no, I have a life that I have given you and I want you to live out that life. And you live it through faith and following after Christ and what he commanded you to do. And Christ commanded us to do a whole lot of stuff. So we have life, our life is rooted in faith, and then how we live out our life has to be rooted in faith. So tying it all together, Paul concludes his argument with this statement, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, this should be a great understanding for us because I don't know if you've not noticed or, or, or not, but you're all a bunch of Gentiles, okay? We all are a bunch of Gentiles. So it should come as a great comfort for us that that blessing that was placed on Abraham thousands of years ago is tied to us. We get a part of that. We are in a part of that. Now, how did we get there? Did we get there because we started doing the law? Did we get there because we were circumcised? Did we get there because we go to the right church? Did we get there because we read from the right Bible? Or what, how did we get to that point? We got to that point the same way Abraham did and everybody else and what Paul was talking about. We got to that point by Jesus Christ through faith. That's what he says. He says, it wasn't your works. It was by the faith that was given to you by Jesus Christ. That's how you came to be partakers of the blessing of Abraham. So it should be a great blessing to us. We should really rejoice in that, that, hey, we get to be a part of this whole thing too. That history that seemed so old and outdated and something that we had no vested interest in. We can now look back and go, no, there I am. There I am in that same group of people that through the faith that's been given to me by Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ accomplishing it on the cross, he immediately tied me to Abraham. So Paul is making this argument to this predominantly Gentile church because he's trying to tell them, guys, you don't have to pick back up circumcision to be a part of Abraham's crew. You already have a connection to Abraham. It's through Christ, though, and that's it. 
Don't try to pick back up circumcision. It's already been done for you. Christ did it on the cross. He connected you through faith. Between Abraham and you, Christ standing at the center. He's already connected you. You're already a part of Abraham's crew. So don't try to go out here and circumcise yourself into it. You're already in it. Don't try to go out here and not eat pork because guess what? You're already in it. You're already there. You started this way. So now we are not naturally Abraham's children. And so theoretically, we should be excluded from that amazing blessing that was given to Abraham and his descendants in Genesis. And it comes from Genesis chapter 12, where he says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram at that time, Get out of thy country and from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless them that curse you and curse them. I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you and in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now, there, we, when we studied through this at, at church here, we did a, a Pentateuch Bible study where we went through Genesis. Um, and, and when you go through those blessings, you realize there's about three different ones, and there's a lot of natural blessings that are in that. Abraham, obviously, Isaac, Jacob were blessed to grow and prosper. Um, even when they went into Egyptian captivity for 400 years, they grew. They came from like being a couple of hundred people to being six million people when they left. So, I mean, there's like, there's all this natural blessing. And as we said earlier, even Ishmael was blessed. As a natural descendant of Abraham, God was still faithful to his promise to Abraham that he said, your seed, your children naturally will be blessed by me, and where they go, I will make them a blessing. So he had already kind of established that naturally. And that's really what the Jews hung on to for several, several, several generations. I'm Abraham's seed. I am the descendant of Abraham. I have this special blessing upon me. But what Paul's arguing here is that, yes, there is the natural connection but there's a far greater principle wrapped up in this blessing. He says it actually culminates in Christ. Christ was like the embodiment of this blessing. He was the one, the seed singular, that was actually the one this was directed to. And through that seed, through Jesus Christ, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So here Paul kind of ties this together beautifully to not only the Jews and the Gentiles, but again, he's tying Gentiles to Abraham through faith. So he says, therefore, we are Abraham's children if we have faith like Abraham. And how do we get faith like Abraham? From Jesus Christ. How are we blessed by God through Abraham according to the first covenant of Abraham? Through Christ, through faith. How do we have faith? By Christ. Not the religious works of the law or any other religious exercises. But also, what was Abraham's example? His faith was on display in his belief. And how are we the children of Abraham? Through our faith that's given to us by Christ that should be displayed in our belief. And how was Paul saying he was a child of Abraham? He tied it back not to his lineage, not to the law, but by believing in Jesus Christ testifying to the faith, showing it was of faith that tied him to Abraham and not just his natural lineage of the tribe of Benjamin circumcised on the eighth day and a keeper of the law. So then he gets into verse 15 and he says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, or I speak in a fleshly way, though it be a man's covenant, talking about Abraham and talking about um about Abraham's covenant and about the law that was going to come. He says, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He says not, and to seeds, so he's specifying he was speaking to a singular entity, not a plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, which is 
Christ. So here's how he kind of ties Christ to being the pinnacle of all this. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, so after the promise was made to Abraham, 430 years, that's when the law was actually confirmed, cannot disannul or cannot make null and void the promise that was made. Okay, So the law that came did not affect the promise that was made to Abraham. Okay, that's what he's getting at. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So what he's the point he's making there is he's saying the promise was made to Abraham, not the law was made to Abraham, okay? He's saying it's not by the works of the law that Abraham is able to receive the blessings that he had been promised. It was by promise. God said, I'm going to bless all nations in your seed. And as Paul explains here, he's pointing to Christ. So the promise is still going on. The promise is still in effect. The promise is still fully capable. The law does not change it. And what Paul is arguing here is he says, the law didn't come on 430 years later and all of a sudden make it not of promise, but by works. It wasn't all of a sudden God said, I'm going to bless Jacob and this lineage, and that's how all this blessing is going to come. And then 430 years later go, you know what, but actually that promise seems a little weak. So I tell you what, we're going to kind of set the promise side of it to the side, and we're going to kind of pick up on the law. And now if you just keep the law, the promise will be yours. The blessing will be yours. No, he says the promise is still in effect. The law didn't change that. The promise is still the promise, which is a thing that is solely of God and given by his discretion. God said, I will bless in you. Your seed will be a blessing to all nations. Well, who's going to make that seed a blessing? Well, God is. Who's going to organize all this? Well, God is. Who's the keeper of this promise? Well, God is. Abraham didn't say, God, I promise you that my seed is going to be a blessing. No, God said, Abraham, I'm telling you, in my omnipowerful, omnipresent, omniscient, all-knowing way, in my sovereign lordship, I'm telling you, I'm going to make your seed a blessing to all nations. That promise is not disannulled, it's not done away with, it's not countermanded by the law. So what Paul's saying is the law did not start this, nor did the law confirm this, nor did the law change this, nor did the law ultimately fulfill this. This promise was promised to Abraham 430 years before the law came on the scene. It was promised before even circumcision was on the scene. And it is kept and fulfilled in Christ Jesus by God in the absence of any kind of man-made, man-organized religious practice. Now again, Christ kept the law. He fulfilled the law. But the law was not the thing that achieved salvation. The law was not the thing that achieved justification. And the law was not the thing that achieved the promise. Christ was. So he explains that it is not it is not done away with by the law, but then you have the natural argument that's made, which again, as Paul is preaching this to Gentiles in this church, he's also preaching it to the Jews that are part of this church as well. And he's kind of preaching it broadly for us as well. The law is not a bad thing. The law is not a negative thing. The law is not something we look at and go, oh, God really goofed on that one, or we don't have to listen to it, or it holds no principles or powers over our lives anymore. We don't, that's, that's not what Paul was arguing. Because Paul makes the point as he goes forward, what was the purpose of the law? If it wasn't needed for the promise, why was the law put in place? And he's going to answer that. In verse 18, though, he says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The inheritance was, if the inheritance was by the law, then it was by the man-centric organized religious practices. Then it re, in reality, it wouldn't come by a promise like was given to Abraham. It would come by man's religious practices. 
Man would be the originator of the promises. However, Paul makes the point here, God gave it to Abraham by a promise. To again, put it all back in God's hands. It's not by man's works, it's by God's works. That's how this is achieved. And God, who is faithful and righteous and just, says, Hey, I promised it to Abraham, it's going to be done. What I say will come to pass. So we have an assurance wrapped up in that, that what God has promised Abraham in that his seed will be a blessing to all nations, then they could take that to the bank. And then, of course, on our side, we get to see it. We get to see the promise fulfilled in Christ Jesus, and then we get to come in to be partakers of that amazing promise through Christ Jesus. All because of the promise, not because of the law. So then he asks in verse 19, why then, sir, what purpose serves the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. So it was added because of transgressions, added to the original promise, if you lay out the timeline there, you've got the promise in Genesis 12. You fast forward 430 years and you've got the law. Why was the law added in? It says it was added because of transgressions. The original promise was still in effect. It was made to Abraham. It promised that the seed would come, as he says, to whom the promise was made. It was, it was hanging out there, but the law was added in until that seed should come. And why? why what, was it, what was it needed for? Why was it put into place? Because of transgressions. It was added because we are sinful. That's why it was added. Why was the law put in place here? It was added because we're sinful. If we were all a bunch of good people, we wouldn't need a law to tell us we're not good people. It also would not be needed to tell us you're not good people and you need that seed of promise to come and save you and make you good people. He says you, you, you would have no clue about that. You wouldn't understand the depth of it. I mean, when you go back and you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and, and a lot of people just like to skip right over those chapters, but I, I really encourage you to go back and look at it because it really gives you such a depth of the knowledge of the divide between God's holiness and man's unholiness. And how, man, there is no way we could bridge that gap. There's no way we could shovel in enough dirt to, make, to fill that in. It was huge. We didn't even know where the shovel was. We didn't even know where, I mean, we had no clue. And the beautiful thing about the law was that it came in with all of its weight and its power and its nuance and its minutia and everything about it to point us and go, man, God is so infinitely holy and there's so much depth to who he is and there's no way that we as feeble, broken men could possibly get all that right. So he says it was put in place to kind of hold to teach, to remind, to convey, to show, to prove obedience in many cases. It says it was put in place because of transgressions, our transgressions. It was added, and, it, and Paul kind of explains this in his Roman letter in chapter 7. He says, I would not have known sin if the law had not been given. And he also points out in chapter 4 that without the law, there's no transgression. So again, you've got this kind of circling theme that the law was this placeholder to show you the reality of transgression, the reality of sin, and your place in it. So it was added to the promise because of transgressions. It was added to identify our transgressions. It was added to guide us through our transgressions. And it was added to point us to the solution for our transgressions, which was Jesus Christ, okay? So that's why it was put into place. It's not bad. In fact, it's very, very good. One of the preachers that I really like to listen to makes a point that an MRI machine is very much like the law. An MRI machine will give you depth of knowledge and imaging into an issue. It does not fix it, though. 
The MRI machine does not fix your broke back or your torn meniscus or your brain tumor or whatever it is. It doesn't fix it. It identifies it with crystal clear precision sometimes. But it's not a fix for it. Well, the law was our MRI machine. It identified everything we needed to know. In fact, it identified it to such details that, man, sometimes we're just like, I don't want to hear it, okay? But it identified it for us. But it didn't fix it. Jesus Christ is the only one who could fix it. So then he goes on and he says, For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness should indeed be by the law. But the Scripture reckoned, or the Scripture showed, the Scripture testified, the Scripture put on display the fact that everything was under sin. Everything. The law testified to that. Everything was under sin. And if everything is under sin, then there's no way that that sinful creation can ever get itself out of sin. So then what was the solution? That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So that's what he's looking at. He's pointing it back to the fact that it can't be by the law. It can't be by any actions of man because man and everything is under sin. So then how does it come? The promise by faith of Christ Jesus might be given to them that believe. So again, we're pointing it back to away from man's actions, away from works of the law, away from religious practices, away from the right this and the right that that man has determined. And instead, Christ has set us free from all that to just believe in Christ. It's just Him. He satisfied it all. He took care of it all. He removed the curse. He joined in the blessing. He did all of that so that the promise might be by faith in Christ Jesus or in Jesus Christ to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster, our guide, our, 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 our teacher in that to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. We're no longer under the tutor. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have has been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So the point he makes, and it, it's a good, if you ever have studied any kind of like monarchy history or things like that, you know that like when a, when a child comes to age or, come, well, actually when a child comes to the throne, okay, to inherit the throne, if he's a child, there's like a regency established, okay? They don't let the two-year-old or the five-year-old or the seven-year-old take the throne and make judgments about the monarchy. Okay, they, that, they're kind of smart in that, and I can testify having an eight, a six, a four-year-old myself, I, I, I hope they would never ascend to a throne and make, you know, big boy decisions. So there is this principle that is in play that they recognize children may not be the best people to rule and govern, okay? So they establish a regency. Why? To kind of govern for the child while the child is being tutored up till the child reaches an age of competency, Okay. That's how sometimes I think about the school teacher mentality here. It was placed for our transgressions. It was there to teach, in particular, the Jews in this time. It was there to teach them, but then again, there was a lot of Gentiles who came into the Jewish fold in all this. There was, there was a time there, though, it was used to teach, train, regent, tutor, media, whatever you want to call it there. It was there to kind of keep a placeholder, train you up until this certain time when this maturity came about, okay? And so that's what he's kind of described here. We were shut up to this faith. We were shut up to this kind of realization, this freedom, this 
deliverance from the Tudor schoolmaster regency, okay, we were shut up under that from the faith because it, it wasn't there yet. Christ had not come yet. Christ had not fulfilled this yet. He hadn't accomplished everything on the cross, and he hadn't ushered in this kind of nothing else, just me, just faith, that's it thing, okay? He had, we were kept under this teaching, this transgression-based education system, okay, until Christ came. So we were raised up in this regency until we were delivered from it by Christ. But notice how he weaves back through this, again, this, this teaching and thought about it being all through faith. And the reason why he does that, and this is something that, I mean, this is ongoing and, and constant, that you always have the bent of men to try and make it all about man, okay? They, there's always this curve away from, from things that take the power away from us, okay? There's always this arc back into, well, what religious practices, what kind of traditional things, what kind of restrictions and things can I place that don't necessarily have biblical basis to them? Maybe they're kind of nuanced in the Bible. Maybe they've got some flavor of biblical things, but it's not really in there. But I'm going to put it back in play because... Ultimately, man wants to be the one to say who is right, okay? Man wants to be the one to say, I'm right because I'm right where I need to be. I'm in the right church. I read the right Bible. I do the right actions. I pray. I preach. I fast. I whatever. I do all these good religious things. That makes me right. Or to be able to look at others. Say, well, but if you're not doing this. If you don't have this, if you aren't living it out this way, if you're not, well, then you're just not right. You're just not right. Man, that's what man lives for. That's that sinful, broken nature. That's why we needed the law in the first place, was to show us, guys, you can't get it right. You've been here for 430 years. You still haven't gotten it right. You've been here. You never are going to get it right. It's always going to require some kind of intervention of God. So that's why he constantly points it back and keeps reiterating. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is no more Jew or Greek. There's no more racial division. There is no more slavery versus free man division. There's no male or female division. There's no superiority complexes. There's no preferential treatment. There's no Russian, Greek Jew, Gentile, Asian, African, there's none of that. There is all one unity in Christ through faith. Why does he keep making a point of that? Because faith is the only thing that did not come from you. Faith is the only thing that you didn't work out on yourself. Faith is not a work of your flesh. Faith is not something that you did the right number of prayers and fasted enough times and went to the right church and read from the right Bible and all of a sudden you gained faith by your works in your possession. Faith was the thing that was given to you. Faith was the thing that was put in your heart by the sovereign work of Christ. You didn't, you, you, you didn't make that happen. As awesome as you are, as big of a prayer warrior as you are, or whatever you want to say, as many caps you've got on your head, as many stars as you've tried to place in your crown, you still could not accomplish that. The only person who can do that is Christ. So that's why Paul keeps going back. You keep going back to circumcision. I'm telling you, it's got to be by faith. You already have it. You've already been given it by Christ in the absence of all of these religious practices of the Jews. Don't try to go back to that. You Number one, you never started there. Don't try to adopt that. Don't try to take that on as the means to the end. It's not. Christ is the means to the end. He's already accomplished it for you. 
You already see the results in you. Did you start by the Spirit or did you start by the works of the flesh? Paul has made the argument for them. You've already been exercising in this. You've already been given faith. You've already believed. You've already been baptized. You've already received the sealing of the Holy Spirit. You already have all that. What can this stuff offer you? Accept the satisfaction as a man that you did something that you can brag about. It's what he talks about with Abraham. If it had been of works, if it had been of Abraham's circumcision, Abraham would have had something to boast about. But it wasn't by Abraham's works. He just believed by faith that was given to him by God. So he said it wasn't his works. What anything Abraham did? There's no actions that Abraham did. He just believed. How did he believe? Because he had faith. How did he get faith? Because God gave it to him. So he was, Abraham was completely left out of that equation as far as from works or actions or things that he could do to kind of make God like him. There was none of that. So however God saw fit to put the law into place, it was to guide us to Christ, to show us Christ, to teach us about Christ, and to point out that it has always been through faith in Christ, going back from Abraham to us. Faith is this bridge that, that, that removes man from the equation. So we are under faith. We are out of school. <laughs> we are under Christ. He argues that you are a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by the works of the law or any other man-centric religious practices. And he even goes on to say, and your baptism is an expression of this. You've put on Christ in that. Your baptism is, is an expression of you putting on Christ and Christ alone. Now, the problem is, again, just like with baptism, you can take baptism and put it on a pedestal as that religious practice that's like the thing that you have to get right. You can put it up there just like they did the brazen serpent back in the wilderness or like these Judaizers are doing with circumcision. And you can say, oh, but if it's not by the right man in the right place and running water by a stream and a creek and a brook in Jordan, wherever, if it's not done this way as man has clarified it, then you're wrong. You're not right. And what Paul was arguing here, it has nothing to do about all that. It has everything to do about you putting on Christ. That's the end game of your, of your baptism. It's not just another religious practice of Christians. It is you putting on Christ. It's you testifying. It's not by my religious actions and practices. None of those have ever saved me. It's only by Christ. So for the Gentile church, he's asking the question, why are you, who are you, why are you, who are already justified, already delivered, already saved, already children of God, already recipients in the promise of Abraham, and this occurred prior to any of the law-based man-centric practices, why are you trying to go to the law? You've already been brought to Christ. You're already following Christ. Christ. You've already received the Spirit. You're already there. Enjoy where you are. Don't try to add back in religious practices. Just enjoy Christ. He's already taken care of all that for you. Don't try to get right with the Jews. You're already there. You're right with Christ. Christ is the only one that matters. And so then he talks in that beautiful unity verse about how there's no more Jews, no more Greeks, no more women, men, no more. We are all one in Christ. So whereas the life that Christ has given us, the life of the law, the life of returning back to man-centric practices will bring us under a curse because when we fail in them, we're cursed by them. That's just the reality of it. When we fail in those things, when we try to justify ourselves by our religious practices, by our traditions, by our whatever it is, or, or even things outside of the church, when we try to, if you're trying to find that source of peace, happiness, joy, satisfaction, and justification in your meditation practice, in your, in your self-seeking, whatever, in your asceticism, in your fasting, whatever the things are, 
that you are trying so hard to find how does my life find purpose? Where do I find blessing? Where do I feel fulfilled? Where do I come into this presence of, of peace, of being justified? Where do I find that? Your religious practices aren't going to do it. Your religious exercises that are meant to gain enlightenment and help you transcend this mortal entrapment all lead back to the self, to you. And if you have not ever realized anything in your life, realize this, that you can't fix you. You broke you, and you can't unbreak you when you are broken. You need a mediator. You need a fixer. You need someone on the outside through knowing you intimately on the inside to come and fix you. The only one who can, has, and will is Jesus Christ. So believe in him. Trust in him. Find your justification in him. Find your satisfaction in him. Find your enlightenment in him and find your peace in him. So I hope this has been beneficial. I'm sorry I ran a little long. If you would, bow with me. We'll close out with prayer. Father, we thank you and pray that you would please help us as we try to live out our lives in faith, following you and you alone, not relying on our own works, our own religious practices, or how awesome that we are, because we really aren't. The only way we find our true source of identity, purpose, happiness, joy, and fulfillment is in you. So please, please help us. Remove the idols from our heart. Focus us through faith in you and you alone as the source of our salvation, justification, and peace. And may God bless us to work on this this week.